Welcome back to Summer Reading with the Deals. This is Season 2, Episode 5 proper, 6 total. Uh, We are looking at Flannery O'Connor's short story collection, Everything That Rises Must Converge, and today we're going to be talking about her final completed story, Parker's Back, which was published originally in the the short story collection. Um, And um, yeah, I'm excited to talk about it. for anybody that's interested in tattoos, uh, this story is about tattoos. So um, there you go. There, there's your hook. Um, Whitney, start us off with just anything, any thought that you have about Parker's back. As I read it, I was wondering how she knew so much about tattooing. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's all the, there are all these little tidbits of information about tattooing the way that you would get tattoos in different parts of the world and what the names for the different tattoos of Jesus are. And so anyway, I was looking through that Brad Gooch biography and she ordered a book about tattooing that helped her know all that information. Called Memoirs of a Tattooist. Yeah, I like that. And it says, this is in her letter to A, who's Betty Hester on 17th of July, 1964. So really almost the week before she died. It says, um, I, found, I found out about tattooing from a book I found in the Marlboro list called Memoirs of a Tattooist. The old man that wrote it took tattooing as a high art and a great profession. No nonsense. Picture of his wife in it. Very demure Victorian lady in off-shoulder gown. Everything you can see except her face and hands is tattooed. Looks like fabric. He did it. <laughs> <laughs> all in caps. And the tattooist in the story also takes himself very seriously, um, like a high artist, uh, you know, reminiscent of that memoir. The way he, he gets so angry at having his work ignored when Parker won't look in the mirror at the tattoo, he's like, look at it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyways, uh, that's, what, that's the story that we'll be talking about. Um, and really, it, it's interesting because as I've been reading this article, um, from the magazine Renaissance, or journal, I guess it is. Um, and I'm going to drop down to find it. Okay. Um, well, that's, that's not the... Uh, Harbor Wind, Everything That Rises Must Converge, O'Connor's Seven Story Cycle. So, originally, the, the collection was going to be a, a, a short story cycle that, that um, just kind of ebbed and flowed, and, and, and we've really talked about a lot of that already, but we're going to talk about it again in the Omega episode. Um, but Parker's Back was actually not intended to be part of that short story cycle, so it, it, it feels very different from any of the stories we've looked at. Um, it has a couple of things in common. Like I actually feel like it has a, a common tone to um, The Lampstand Enter First, which we just finished discussing, um, to me, just like I said in that podcast, the lame, the lame Shalina first doesn't feel like it's a metaphor for something. It feels like it's, it's more just a, the story itself, whereas something like A View of the Woods feels much more metaphorical. Um, and, and some of her stories seem like so metaphorical it's hard to take them seriously, like, like uh, A Late Encounter with the Enemy. You know, that, that's a good example from the other collection that's like, it's obviously meant to represent more than just the story, but it's it's kind of a hilarious story, um, and yet I guess the things that it represents are the more like profound and deep and serious things. Whereas some maybe some of her stories have 
the lighter side is on the the representative, you know, like like what the metaphor is, and the more serious part is like, you know, someone getting gored to death by a bull or something like that. Like this, the most serious part of the story is the is the what's on the surface and what's beneath the surface or what's implied. That's where the the levity is, I guess. Yeah, the the title of the story, as always, is a little intriguing because before I read the story, I thought it meant Parker is back. I thought that Parker's was this contraction of Parker mm-hmm. is, Parker is back. Um, and then I started reading it and realized it meant a possessive Parker's back, <laughs> the back yes. belonging to Parker. But then the more I thought about it, the more I realized that the story several times says, go back, go back. He feels like he's getting this prophetic instruction to go back, like to go backwards um, in the book of tattoos, to go back yes, to the tattoo he's yes. supposed to mm-hmm. actually get. And then it, it comes up again, and there are these Jonah connections, um, this idea that Jonah has to go back to Nineveh, and he's running yes. from God's will. Um, so I realized, wow, Parker's back means more than one thing. Of course, it does. And, and Parker's back. Like, it, it isn't, like you said, it isn't changing the meaning of the title. It's just multiplying the numbers of, quote-unquote, backs that the story involves. Not just his literal back, but the commands to go back, the motions to go back, the return to um, the house, you know, Sarah Ruth's house. Um so, you know, just thinking about, and, and even like returning to his birth name, Obadiah yeah. Elihu. Um, so it's just, yeah, there, there's a lot to it starting with a title. And it's interesting that you mentioned that because it's almost like Flannery O'Connor made a title that she knew was going to make people think Parker is back. Like it, it, it naturally is going to like misdirect people because you wouldn't think she'd be highlighting someone's back physically speaking it just doesn't it's not the first thing you would think of right and so the only other title that i can think of of hers and that's this is just because it's just off the top of my head wise blood like a, a body part blood you know that's the only other one i could think of off the top of my head that has a body part in the title um now I'm racking my brain. But um, to me, yeah, setting us up to to want to know why is it called Parker's Back, you know, that's one of the many great ways to title a story or, or a novel or a song or anything is to to put the title out there and then you have to read the whole story or listen to the whole song or wh- whatever the medium is to understand why it's titled that. But by the end of the story or me, whatever medium you're using, you know it. And so um, it, it's like you can read this story the first time and, and see, oh, it's about a guy getting a tattoo on his back, right? But like when he said, it's it's more than just that one use of the word back. Um, and, and I do think it's, it's actually a really powerful word for Flannery O'Connor because... To me, this story has some of this, like, ancient words ever true, changing me and changing you. Um, Like, 
it's it's about returning to something. Um, and, and of course, the tattoo that Parker gets is a Byzantine Christ. It's called the Pantocrator, P-A-N-T-O-C-R-A-T-E-R. I think I spelled that right. Um, and so it's it's a uh, you know Byzantine era uh, church. So so like five hundred to about eight hundred A.D. Is that about? Or am I am I like a little late on that? Is it? I think the earliest form of this showed up in like the fourth century, maybe fifth century. So. Um, yeah, go ahead. It also, it's a little surprising that she would use a Byzantine Christ mm-hmm. as Catholic, but yeah. I read that um, a friend of hers had arranged for a Byzantine church to um, say prayers for her during her final illness, and that it may be that this isn't kind of an homage to that or like a um, gesture of gratitude Interesting. for that, that she made it a Byzantine Christ. Not, I mean, the Byzantine icons have a, despite being a bit flat and unrealistic in their depiction they have this power so it may it does make sense to me that that sort of an iconography would fit her purposes here yeah and this idea of like a two-dimensional christ you know a tattoo on someone's back well that's that doesn't you know that's not the literal christ and yet you know if you're catholic anyways the wine and the bread of of communion once it's uh what's the word Con- consecrated Con- um, is that the word what what do you call it? what do you what do you call the word that you like is it consecrated it's called consecrated as an adjective applied to it i'm not sure what yeah, yeah, the verb yeah, yeah. you're looking for is no that's yeah. exactly i'm talking yeah. about like that the, they they ordain it to be you know uh, communion, yeah, basically, and so um, the Eucharist. Um, so this idea of like you are you are ingesting the literal blood and and uh, flesh of Christ in the communion, or if you, if you're a Protestant, you are ingesting the memory of like we see it more as a symbol, a reminder, a reminder. Yeah. Um, of course, the Flanner would say, well, if it's just a symbol, then, you know, to heck with it. Um, and she said that at a party to someone about, about the Eucharist being just a symbol. But I do think the reason we do it is not symbolic. It's, it's, it's commemorative, like yeah. when he said. It, um, it has power, mm-hmm. even according to the scriptures. Yeah. It has a power beyond just being a symbol. I, I, I personally feel it's more than a symbol, but it's difficult for me to also wrap my mind around it being quite literally turned into the blood and body of Christ in the the way that the Catholic Church teaches. So, Not to say they're wrong, but to say it is a mystery. And right. I think that that's, that's one of the things that, you know, pe- people in general just hate mystery. They want certainty. They, they, they don't want to live with something being unexplainable. Go. Sorry to interrupt. No. Um, I kind of raised my hand to get in there, but... I wanted to remember to say you had said Parker's back. The title also has to do with a return to ancient things, you know, a return to um, origins. I was thinking about it being a return to faith that your infant baptism set out for you, which would have been a very powerful idea for her as a Catholic. Um, It says that his name, Obadiah Elihu, was on his baptismal record, which he got at the age of a month. His mother was yes, a Methodist, so he was yes. baptized as an infant. And it's like he was set apart for faith in spite of himself, even though he didn't want it. 
and he, he was drawn back to the faith. And in fact, I, I read something that is from Mystery and Manners. Um, O'Connor said, when I write a novel in which the central action is a baptism, she's talking about the violent buried away. But she says, I am very well aware that for a majority of my readers, baptism is a meaningless rite. And so in my novel, I have to see that this baptism carries enough awe and mystery to jar the reader into some kind of emotional recognition of its significance. Mm. And so this idea that you'll eventually come back to the faith you're baptized in as an infant, even if it wasn't um, because God has laid a claim on you and he will... um, come after you, essentially call you back to himself. That's actually also a central idea in Graham Greene's The End of the Affair, which I mentioned last time. But I yep. think Graham Greene and O'Connor have um, some some real overlaps as you know 20th century Catholic writers writing it around the same time. Um, and this idea that God has a claim on you um, when you've been baptized and he will pursue you to make good on that claim. And it's interesting that you mentioned that, like your parents put that claim on you and it's like, well, I mean, we named Josephine Josephine because it means God increases. You know, I, I, it also is for Joe March and her middle name is Ayer for Jane Eyre. But um, just, you know, naming a child, like dedicate, you know, we had a baby dedication in our church. Um, you know, our, our, our biggest hope and literally my only hope for Josephine is that she comes to faith in Christ and becomes a woman of God and is a woman after God's own heart. If she does that, even even after I die, then I got the best thing I could possibly get from my child. I, as much as I would love for her to love any of the things that I, that I care about. <laughs> um, we were speculating this morning she might become a drummer because she likes she to be percussive time. so she much. Was, <laughs> she was keeping time. I was like patting her, you know, to burp her, and she was keeping time with me, like hitting my arm while I was patting her back and so I, I just think she, you know she she's got some music in her hopefully she's got some swimming in her but you know if she doesn't it's not the end of the world but you know the thing that would break my heart would be if she never uh chose Christ and and you know that's that's something that you know when parents uh you know have their children you know obviously Parker's mother wanted him to be in the faith. I mean, Obadiah Elihu <laughs> means servant of Yahweh. He is my God. And what what a you know powerful name. And then it mentions his mom taking him to um, a revival, and I'm not seeing the page. Yeah, and he runs away yeah, from he run, the revival. He runs away from it. Reminded me. In fact, I, I'm sure I marked it. It reminded me of uh, Thomas in the Comforts of Home. Yes. Uh, yeah, it says. Um, his mother his mother wept over what was becoming of him. One night she dragged him off to a revival with her, not telling him where they were going. When he saw the big lighted church, he jerked out of her grasp and ran. The next day he lied about his age and joined the Navy. So this idea of his mother is desperate to get him in the service of God. And he is just... I, I feel like the thing that is driving him is uniqueness. Mm, mm-hmm. um, and the thing that he, you know, that he that he ultimately finds just spellbinding, and he, he even uses the word rapturous, or it, it, he felt rapture when he saw it. So he felt like Christ had returned and he was called up 
you know, to heaven. Or if you're, you know, if you want to get into eschatology, then we can talk about that later. But, um, but that concept of he sees the man tattooed from head to toe and he is just completely transfixed. He's just like, that is who I want to be. And before that, it says he was as normal as a loaf of bread. Is that yeah. right? Is it ordinary? Heavy, earnest, as ordinary as a loaf of bread. Yeah. And so ordinary as a loaf of bread to singular as at that time. Now, you got to remember, yeah, 2021, a lot of people have tattoos. But at that time, like, okay, I'll give you an example of like something that's still pretty rare. Someone that has hair like longer than their butt. Like, you do not see many, certainly many men, many women um, that have hair that's so long. You, I mean, you will remark on it if you see it, yes. right? You know, well, look at that. Turn your head. Yeah. And so, you know, this like, what would you see that would just be like, I can't believe that's real, you know. I mean, that's just the first thing I thought of off the top of my head because I, I guess I thought of Crystal Gale. But, um, <laughs> yeah. but th- the singularity of the man with the tattoos is lost on us because of how prevalent tattoos are. But I think even seeing someone like Travis Barker that's, you know, g- literally got tattoos from head to toe, it's remarkable it, it is. when you it's see remarkable. it. It's remarkable. In fact, we saw someone with lots of tattoos yesterday and I said, and in fact, someone with a woman who kind of looks like a Kardashian. And so I, I pointed out the overlap to Adam, but it, you know, it was r- remarkable enough to remark upon. Yeah. But this man's at a fair. He is right. a fair attraction. That shows you how unusual his tattoos are it's in that day and show. age. Yeah. Um, and, and it, you know, it overlaps with the, the story, a temple of the Holy ghost, this idea of in that story, the, the girls go to see this hermaphrodite and then the girl that stays home is, like, wondering about it. And um, and so there's this idea of, like, in, in Flannery O'Connor's fiction, uh, she depicts freaks. And one of the quotes that she's famous for is, like, um, why, is like, why are there so many freaks in your, in your stories? It's like, well, because in the South we can still recognize one. Um, and not to say that everyone's a freak that doesn't live in the South or... <laughs> Heaven forbid that the South doesn't have any freaks. Um, you might even call me a freak. That's it's fine. almost more like she's saying in the South we aren't afraid to call a freak a freak. True, and true. we're not either kind of trying to just ignore and not pay attention or do do the thing that in um, the lame shall enter first. Shepard was trying to do, which is like hide the freakiness away, like hide the yeah. the club foot away, and just ignore it as much as possible. That Maybe in the South, she seemed to think there was a willingness to just say, that's freaky about something. And that, like, you know, at that time, if you, I mean, even now, if you saw someone covered in tattoos, there's a reason they don't have clear skin, they right? Probably like Parker, that person wants them to be noticed. Yeah. You know, wants to be gawked out a bit, even. He he said, it says he can always feel a woman's eyes on him, mm. and he just, he loves that. He needs it. And it it's killing him that his wife won't look at him once they're married, yes. you know. He's, yes. He, she wants him to keep his sleeves rolled down and keep his shirt on, and it, mm. it's really distressing to him. Interesting. Yeah, just the, the, the story here, I mean, really, if you had to say what, what happens in this story, 
Parker gets a tattoo on his back of Jesus. <laughs> and then he goes to a bar, and all the people that know him from the bar are like, Oh, he's got a new tattoo! Hey! Is that what it sounds like? I think so. And they're like, you the, going to evangelize to us? Yeah. It says, yay, oh, yay boy. <laughs> boy. Um, That's hilarious. So, I, you know, I just, I got such a kick out of that reading this <laughs> the first time. Like, just how I could see this exact person at like, one, you know, at Waynesboro, you know, event. Like, yay, boy. You know. Um, not sure if I would see it in Augusta, although maybe, um, but it just, it feels like there's this confluence of like backwoodsy, you know, small town people and the city, right? Because at that time, I'm sure everybody that had tattoos lived in cities with the exception of like veterans that mm. went back home. Because that's where tattoo parlors are. Right, right. He has to drive 50 miles to the city to yeah. get his tattoo. So, so it, it's just interesting to think about like what's associated with, you know, e- each, you know, the farm versus the city. Um, There's a moment too, where it, it, he's driving out of the city and into the country again mm-hmm. at the end of the story. And it says, um, it was as if he were himself, but a stranger to himself driving into a new country though. Everything he saw was familiar to him, even at night. Mm. Um, I paused over that because um, there's this prayer that Flannery O'Connor had printed out. Um, and the prayer to Raphael? Prayed every day, the prayer yeah. to Raphael. Do you, are you uh, I've got it thinking right about that, too? Yeah, I pulled it up, too. This out prayer also is echoed in the displaced person. Um, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. But this this idea, Adam, if you want to read a part of it that stuck out to you. Well, I just, ha- I just have it in this letter to Jan- Janet McCain. It says, Oh, Raphael, lead us toward those who we are waiting for, those who are waiting for us. Raphael, angel of happy meeting, lead us by the hand toward those who we are looking for. May all our movements be guided by your light and transfigured with your joy. Angel, guide of Tobias, lay the request we now address to you at the hand, at the feet of him on whose unveiled face you are privileged to gaze. Lonely and tired, crushed by the separations and sorrows of life, we feel the need of calling you and of pleading for the protection of your wings so that we may not be as strangers in the province of joy, all ignorant of the concerns of our country. Remember the weak, you who are strong, you whose home lies beyond the region of thunder, and the land that is always peaceful, always serene, and bright with the resplendent glory of God. There's this emphasis in the prayer of, of your true home. Like, where does St. Raphael, where, or where does Raphael live? Saying that he lives in a place where you can see Jesus' unveiled face, which seems relevant to this story. But also, we don't want to be as strangers in the province of joy. We don't want to be ignorant of the concerns of our true country, which is heaven. Um, we can forget very easily that our true country, our eternal country, is heaven. That Adam's got a notification. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, so that our true home lies beyond the region of thunder in a land that is always peaceful and serene. Um, it's just interesting. He's going home, but there's a, an indication that perhaps there's a truer home. Um, he's rejected when he gets to his kind of temporary home with his and, wife. And what's that, uh, what's that family name in uh, The Displaced Person? 
um, the displaced person's family or the um, the woman that leaves and like has a stroke in the car. Oh, shift. I'll look it up. It's um, not shiftlet. That's in uh, the life you saved. Maybe your own. Yes. Book. Okay. For some reason, the names. Um, I tend to get the names a little mixed up in these stories. Mrs. McIntyre is the woman who owns the farm shortly. The shortly. Yes. Um, so the names here, obviously Whitney talked about Obadiah Elihu. I thought about Parker because I thought, you know, his name is Parker and his wife hates automobiles. <laughs> <laughs> and it says he tries to go, you know, like, go parking with her right and she won't do it and and she's like i you know we gotta be married first and you know good on her but um but it's interesting that that's his name like his name is associated with the automobile and really like flannery o'connor's entire oeuvre is written at the height of the automobile mm-hmm. um, era in, in america anyways and so he also wrecks a vehicle yeah you know to momentous results. Yeah. And so <laughs> so it's interesting that he's got this name that has to do with, like, safely, you know, parking <laughs> a vehicle, and then he wrecks a vehicle and almost kills him, and that's when he, he basically goes on the adrenaline of that to go get the tattoo. And so you might say he has a near-death experience, and then, then he, like, immediately wants to change his life, and um, he's been saving the back. He's been saving his last broad sheet of skin for a special tattoo. And kind of saving it because he's selfish and he says, I yeah. can't see it. So it what's like, the point? I, why get a tattoo on something I can't look at? I'm doing this for me. Yeah, that's good. And he's doing something that could be considered, I guess, making yourself a work of art, something artistic, but he's doing it for himself. He finally thinks, well, I'll do this sort of for my wife, but to prove her wrong... I th- that's an initial motivation. I'll prove her wrong. Um, she'll have to like this tattoo. It's going to be a godly tattoo. Yeah. Now, the, the marriage between these two, even on the very first page, Parker's wife was sitting on the front por- porch floor snapping beans. Parker was sitting on the steps some distance away watching her sullenly. She was plain, plain. I was imagining that, like, she was plain, plain oh, okay. <laughs> for some reason. Okay, okay. <laughs> I don't know. It made me think of the, uh, the, the reiteration that Jesus uses, and, you know, that I've heard several sermons on this, uh, most of which were by Tim Keller, um, about this idea of reiterating yourself in Aramaic brings a, a, a strong intensity to something. And so... Um, so, you know, there's several times where Jesus utters the same thing twice. Um, but I just thought that that plain, plain, it had this kind of like biblical, like, I know it's going to have a biblical overtone because it's Flannery O'Connor, but it's like, even as early as that point in the story, it already feels like, okay, this is going to have something, you know, there's going to be some sort of spiritual element to this story. Um, obviously I expect that because I've read all of the other stories in this collection, but this one to me surprised me because I remember reading it the first time and, and being like, is 
did I remember that correctly? Is that how it really ended? Because I think I read it late at night and like finished it and went to bed. And um, yeah, the, the marriage, you know, starting out with his wife, uh, he, with Parker and his wife on the steps. She's pregnant. It says pregnant women were not his favorite kind. <laughs> and they're always, just, just like there are in some of the other stories, I, I, I think of the comforts of home, um, these drastic juxtapositions. You know, uh, one of them is talking about, I guess, their their courtship. Is, would you call it that? Yeah. Um, it says, let me just find it. Um, I'm sure I put, you know, LOL there. Oh, yeah, here we go. Um, it says, so this is right after he, you know, tries to proposition her to go to a deserted road and park together and, you know, do it. It says, not until after we're married, she said, just like that. Oh, that ain't necessary, Parker said, and as he reached for her, she thrust him away with such force that the door of the truck came off, and he found himself flat on his back on the ground. He made up his mind then and there to have nothing further to do with her. They were married in the county ordinance, ordinary's office, <laughs> like, the, you know, because Sarah Ruth said, thought churches were idolatrous. Like, like just the, the immediate shift like a sitcom it is. where someone says, I'll never, and then immediately you cut yeah. to them doing the thing. And so, you know, Flannery's humor, even even at the end, even when she's going to pass away, is so sharp and so hilarious. And I, you know, I just, I just can't read one of her stories without laughing out loud and, and just thinking, how was she just so perceptive at what was funny? I mean, she might have the best sense of humor of anyone that's ever lived. I love that he had Elizabeth II and Philip where his stomach and his yes. liver were. That really, that really got to me. Especially since we've watched all seasons, all four seasons of The Crown Just so far. What they would think of that detail, I love to think about that. And 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 it says Elizabeth II, like just to make sure it's not you know it's not not Elizabeth from you know, Elizabethan times. It's 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 the one that's still alive now. Um, but, yeah, let's talk some about his tattoos, and we'll, we'll go back to the marriage, you know, eventually. Um, here are some of the things he has tattoos of. The first thing he got a tattoo of, an eagle on a cannon. Okay. He also has a serpent around a shield. He also has uh, hearts, some of which have um, arrows through them. And then he has a, a spread hand of cards. Um, oh, and we found out later one of the hearts has his mother's name in yeah, it. Yeah, Betty Jean, I think She would is. only pay for it if he put his... He didn't want to put his mother's name in it, but yeah. she paid for it. Also, you find out uh, that his mother works at a laundry. And it says his mother works in a laundry and can support him, and she would not pay for any tattoo except her name on a heart, which he had put on grumbling. Um, and it's just interesting that, you know, use the word grumbling because I think about the grumbling of the Israelites in the wilderness. Um, you know, it's just a loaded word because it's got a, a biblical connotation. But um, his mother cleans clothes, and he's a guy that doesn't want to wear a shirt. And it's, it's just interesting this, how Flannery O'Connor sets up the relationships such that this guy is really... He doesn't like pregnant women, and his wife's pregnant, and he doesn't wear a shirt, and his mom washes clothes, and it's it's just really interesting that 
he is the way he is, and he's. I, I feel like he's the most radically individualistic character, even more than like Julian or, you know, whoever else, uh, Mister Fortune. Like he, he seems like he is the most headstrong character. And yet, like most of those headstrong characters in these stories, he does not actually have a lot of power. Um, there are all these signs that his wife is more powerful than him. Not just when she throws him away from her in that truck and breaks the door off the truck because she's so powerful. And she also comes at him with a terrible bristly claw and slams his face into the hood of the truck at one point. Like, she's very powerful. He, like, you know, <laughs> uses the Lord's name in vain, and, and it seems like she smacks him with a broom. And at the end, she hits him repeatedly yeah. hard with a broom. Yeah. But it's not just physical power. You have things like she made him marry her, basically. I yeah. mean, she kind of just, like, forced his hand until he did it, and he didn't even want to. And there's also, um, he d- he didn't have uh, an opinion about whether churches were idolatrous one way or the other. But Sarah Ruth thought that churches were idolatrous, so they get married in this pitiful little yeah. county ordinary's office. Sarah Ruth seems to be extremely legalistic. Yeah. And to, I, I was thinking of her as being kind of a Pharisee. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one point where I think she's connected to Judas. These people who um, betray and are antagonistic to Jesus while thinking that they are righteous. Yeah. Um, but I'm just going to throw out that I love the part where um, he says, which which you like the best about his tattoos. And she says, none of them, but the chicken's not as bad as the rest. <laughs> and she means the eagle. Yeah. Speaking of, I mean, that's just one more way in which he loses his sense of having the upper hand with her all yeah. the time. You know, I'm going to get into this later, but I, you know, just like with a view of the woods, this, this one had a connection to Flannery O'Connor to me. Like this, to me, this is kind of like, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't. Like, you can't write um, secular literature because you're a Christian. You can't write Christian literature because you're, you, you know, you're, you're too close to the secular world. Like, she, she seems like she is never going to please everyone uh, on on any side mm-hmm. of of her readership or, or of the general public, I guess at that time, because the average Christian reader wants to read something that I think she would consider to be falsely sentimental, like how if the lame shall enter first when it had, it had ended with uh, Norton uh, Shepherd recognizing Norton as his son, and like you know th- th- there being this kind of like maudlin uh, saccharine ending that didn't even have a Christocentric ending. It was just, just sweet. sweet. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, you're right. I think a lot of people at that time were were just aghast at how violent her stories are, how kind of s- suggestive of, of lurid things they are, um, and, and, and just how weird they are. I mean, I think, I think that even to this day, a lot of people in Christianity have a very hard time with weirdness, yeah. <laughs> As someone who is very weird. <laughs> but, you know, I love you guys and hope hope that that's uh, you know, mutual. But but I think that Flannery's weirdness comes across so much in this story because at this time, like, a story about someone wanting to get a tattoo 
was a weird story. It's funny to think, though, that he says, what fool would waste their time having a chicken put on themselves? Well, if there's anyone in the world who would get a tattoo of a chicken, like, if Flannery O'Connor were going to get a tattoo, it would be a chicken, right? Surely. (laughs) And and he does have peacock tattoos, which is interesting. Um, And I think he got them overseas, right? Yes, that's on his knees. On his knees, which, you know, makes you think, huh. Oh, kneeling. Kneeling. In prayer, yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. So, um, there are so. I mean, the thing about this story being the last one she completed, you know, uh, other than Judgment Day is the other one that that she was working on when she died. Um, I feel like this is the last story she was going to tell. And like I mentioned on the Judgment Day episode, that's her first regenerated story. And so that's like, she knows she's already like on borrowed time at that point. And she's like, I'm just going to rewrite my first story as the first step at my, you know, getting ready for my new body in, you know, in, in heaven and my restored body and, and mine. And, and um, what a beautiful thought just that, that we don't have to think about our, our ailments and our afflictions in eternity and, you know, if, if we know Christ. And so, um, you know, Flannery O'Connor is, is, is infusing that through rewriting the story and I think in this story as well, just the, the plot of the story to me is very indicative of the hope that she has in Christ. And so, you know, I don't necessarily feel like any of the characters are hopeful, <laughs> but, but the message of the story is interesting, especially the way it ends. Oh my gosh, a bird just did a, like a dive bomb into the parking lot outside of my office. Looked like a, a hawk. Anyways, very Flannery O'Connor thing to happen while we're making a podcast. Just a bird going to get its dinner. Um, let's talk some about the, the other tattoos. So he's got the eagle on a cannon. So I want, I'm, I'm, what I mean is all of his tattoos other than the, the final tattoo. The eagle on a cannon, the serpent around a shield... Uh, hearts, some of which have arrows through them, and one of which has his mother's name. A hand of cards. He also has an anchor. He has crossed rifles. Um, a tiger, a panther, and later it says a lion. It's possible that Flannery might not have gotten to edit that, but let's just say a tiger and a panther and maybe a lion, because it says a lion, a panther and a lion um, on page 225 in my book, uh, a cobra around a torch, hawks, Elizabeth II, and Philip, and then the peacocks, um, can't remember what the last, the last thing was besides the peacocks, but, um, to some extent it sounds like a catalog of cliched tattoos, yeah, I mean, I have these jeans that have little tattoo decorations all over them and they have a lot of these same tattoos anchors and playing cards and hearts with arrows through them so those feel like this the standards he has a buddha on one uh, upper arm and then his peacocks are on his knees um yeah and so he just has them everywhere and i think what he wanted to look like was like a, a moving stained glass window like he he thought oh that guy that i saw at the fair was just so colorful and interesting and unique, Mm -hmm. and I'm as ordinary as a loaf of bread. And he was also heavier when he was younger. And so this idea of, like, 
he's trying to find a way to not be himself, which is interesting mm-hmm. because he does find that, but it, it's much more costly to his identity than he thinks. And the tattoos are disjointed in a way that bothers him. He wants it to be yes, one coherent yes. whole that you would look at it. It looks like a big design. Yes. Um, whereas it, it looks like a smorgasbord of random yes. things instead, which it is, um, because he didn't have the money to get one huge tattoo. That I mean, presumably he could have gone in and gotten one huge tattoo and it taken weeks and he just they could have chipped away at it and it yeah. would have been one big design, but he didn't, ha- he didn't do that. Um, his self-creation is not really measuring up to his standards. He's dissatisfied with it all the time. Yeah. And I think the selection, to some degree, just reflects that, that he's not put a lot of thought and intention into what he's getting tattoos of. Yeah. They don't mean anything to him in and of themselves. And it says, the effect was not one of intricate arabesque, of one intricate arabesque of colors, but of something haphazard and blotched. Sorry, haphazard and botched. Right. <laughs> and so, and so um, the end result of that is his dissatisfaction grew and became general. So he becomes less satisfied with his tattoos over time. And, you know, very, very similar to an addiction. Yeah. You know, and it doesn't sustain him as long each time. a month or so, and then yeah. he'll be dissatisfied again. Now, <laughs> just... The concept of him wanting to cover himself in tattoos, it's, it's like, it's, a, it's an achievable goal, right? And yet, it's a one-time thing. I mean, that, you know, that's the thing about tattoos is once it's on there, it's on there. I guess you can, like, pay a lot of money and get it redone or covered up or get some skin grafted off of you or something like that. But, you know, nowadays when so many more people have tattoos, I you know... I don't necessarily think about, like, how much did that person think about their tattoo before they got it. I used to think that more when I was young. Like, when I was a teenager and I saw someone with a tattoo, I'd be like, I wonder, like, how committed to that tattoo they are. Right, have they really thought through, when I'm 80, will this matter to me? Yeah. Because you do, I mean, anytime you um, see a tattoo that's kind of on a meme or, like, a viral post or something it's something really absurd that you would think how could a person want this tattoo yeah you know this makes me think though i listened to that podcast s town a few years ago and it's a about lots of things but it's a a true story but one of the things is that this main character who lives in the south and is a little bit of a recluse kind of troubled he gets tattoos compulsively and it's because the pain of the tattooing process seems to distract him from his psychological pain, emotional pain. Um, he gets addicted to this feeling of, you know, all you focus on when you're getting a tattoo is the f- sensation of getting a tattoo. So he hates tattoos. He, he kind of goes on record saying he thinks they're ugly and tacky and trashy, but he just keeps getting them. But I do think the same way that other people sometimes harm themselves as a way of distracting from yeah, other types of yeah. pain. Um there may be an element of that in the story. Yeah. Um, a, there's this really beautiful moment toward the end of the story that says, well, I'll contextualize it. His wife is saying, who's there? Who's there? Who's at the door? I won't recognize him. And he says, Obadiah. He finally breaks down and uses his you know, baptismal yeah. name. 
Obadiah, he whispered, and all at once he felt the light pouring through him, turning his spiderweb soul into a perfect arabesque of colors, a garden mm. of trees and birds and beasts. Interesting. You just mentioned that yeah. his tattoos had failed to become a beautiful arabesque, um, but his soul, yeah. by the end of the story, has turned into a beautiful arabesque. And I think mm. your soul, not your body, is meant to be the masterpiece by the end of your life. Your body is yes, going to keep yes. de- deteriorating. And I think that that's, you know, for anybody that has like a ton of tattoos or even one tattoo, you know, let the tattoo be a window into your soul or, or a, a, a starting point to get you to talk about your soul to someone else. Um, because I think a lot of people get a lot of tattoos as armor, you know, um, and I, I've known some people like get tattoos, like if they've been abused or something like that. It's almost like a way of reclaiming that part of their body that they felt like was was, um, um, you know, I lost my word there, um, violated. Um, and and I totally understand that, and I I respect that. And 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 if that was something I needed to do, then I I might do that. You know, it's like I, I'm not above. And it's like, I, I don't have any judgment in my heart for tattooed people or untattooed people or people that judge people that tat- have tattoos or people that have tattoos that judge people that judge people that have tattoos. Like, I don't have judgment for that. I have love for you. And, you know, if your tattoos mean something to you, then that's a great way. You know, it's like, that's a great way to, like, show your soul to somebody. It's like, oh, well, this I got this tattoo you know, when I was 18 and, you know, it's like, it's a way to just start people understanding you. And, um, and so that in that way, having tattoos can be a great beneficial thing. Now I don't have any tattoos (laughs) except for the temporary ones I write on my hands, like, you know, class or, you know, book or library. Like, you know, I, I try to write things to remind myself on my hands. Um, but this idea of, how do you show your soul to someone? I think some people need to use tattoos to do that. That's fine. Some people need to use words to do that. We're doing that right now on a podcast. Some people need to use visual art to do that, like someone like Vincent Van Gogh. It's like, yeah, you can read his letters and see a lot of his soul in his letters, but it's amazing to look at his paintings and see how much of himself he puts into it. Um, or music, you know. Um, I mean, I you know... I love playing guitar. I like to think that you could know me well if you listen to my guitar playing. Um, but that's just, that's a whole nother podcast. But, but I also sing. And so it's like my singing and the words that I'm singing are going to be more illustrative of who I am in some ways than my guitar playing because not everyone can play guitar, but everyone can hear words and, you know, on understand it hopefully most of them I, I don't know I might start throwing in some Faulkner words just to yeah. you know <laughs> well, student, I, maybe it's I don't know I was about to say in some ways I think it's uniquely human in a really powerful way that we can articulate ourselves with words mm-hmm. um, but of course humans are singular in so many ways like yeah. also humans are the only creatures that can play a musical instrument. But then you have things like birds who can sing beautiful what, songs. What about cats that play piano? <laughs> Not well, but, well, I mean, okay, Tom from Tom and Jerry, he's like a maestro level. Like, he's virtuoso. Bugs Bunny, I think 
Donald and Daffy have like a piano duel in Ro- from Roger Rabbit. <laughs> but you bring up a good point, which is animals don't need to express themselves through music. That their music is actually their communication. Yeah. Like it's not. It's not that some birds sing and some birds speak normally. Right. It's that all birds sing. And, and, you know, you have to learn how to sing your own songs, yeah. so to speak. And there is, I mean, Flannery O'Connor is an artist. Of course she values artistic expression. And she would value the artistic expression of the tattoo artist, yeah. I think. Or of even the person who is willing to let his body be a vehicle for art. Yeah. Um, but she just pauses to make sure we understand as readers that the ultimate work of art that can be the most beautiful is your soul yeah. and not anything material. Yeah. I think every artist I've ever heard talk about their art has eventually expressed some disappointment that they couldn't quite realize their vision as perfectly as they, yeah, you know, they couldn't quite capture what they saw or heard um, or imagined, even though they might've done something wonderful. There's just a limit. Yeah. Um, there's no limit to what God can do with our souls ultimately in eternity. Yeah, and, you know, one of the things that struck me about this story is knowing it was Flannery O'Connor's last story that she was trying to finish, you know, um, I I read a a letter that she had started in, like, 1960 or 61, and it, like, not, you know, it it wouldn't come together for her. And, um, you know, I... I've been thinking a lot about like the Holy Spirit inspiring people and I, you know I I think that God can give anyone creative inspiration they don't have to be a Christian. I mean, he's the ultimate creator. So any creativity is coming from his starting the ball rolling and you know he's still creative even now like Josephine didn't exist while she was in Wendy's womb a, a year ago but it's like she was she wasn't out of the womb. Now she is and it's like that wasn't because, like, Whitney and I, like, got our, you know, reproductive, you know, cell and, or, you know, whatever, sperm and egg and put them together and we're like, we're going to make you into Josephine. Like, God, God knits the soul together in the womb of the mother. And, and, and he knows who, he knew who Josephine was before we even knew we were pregnant. He knows how many hairs are on her head now. He knows how many head, hairs are going to be on her head when she dies. Like, he knows what her grandkids' names are going to be. Like, he just... The knowledge of God is so so vast and, and unsurmountable that we really can't even fathom it, and that's that's part of the mystery of it. And it's like Flannery gets to this point with with Parker's back, where she I think she really just let like just as Parker gets the tattoo of Christ on his back, it feels like this story is her just like putting a final note into her symphony of her writing and saying, okay, here's the last thing, and it's all about Jesus. It's not about some spirit God that doesn't have a, a, a an incarnation, right? Because that's what Sarah Ruth believes in. She believes that God is spirit, which is a heresy, right? And so the, the, the terminology that you would use for it is like, well, well she's, she's denying the incarnate God by saying that he can't have a picture of God on his back. And it's similar to what 
Jesus was accused of. I mean, Jesus yeah, is true. killed because he's accused of heresy, saying he's God. Yep, and, great point. And, you know, the people who have him killed are saying, you can't be God, God's a spirit. That's that's heretical. Yeah. Um, and Parker is, I think he's paralleling Jesus many times. Yeah. Um, almost like G- Jesus is taking him over as a vehicle, so therefore he's, he's kind of paralleling Christ. Yeah. Um, even being beaten by by his wife at the end after she's basically said, um, you know, you couldn't be, that couldn't be Jesus on your back. Right. Um, Jesus, no one knows how, how God looked. Well, s- some people did know how God looked in a True. sense because True. they saw Christ on earth. Yeah, that and that's that's what the whole Christian faith is built upon is that God did come to earth, that the part of God that came to earth was necessary to, it was necessary for him to come to earth because of the sins of every person. It balances the story so beautifully because on the one hand, your body is not the ultimate masterpiece. It's not what's ultimately important, but your body's not evil either. Your body's not to, I think that Sarah Ruth rejects the body and earth, just the earthiness of kind of being in your body, um, that's not, not right either. God created the body. God yeah. inhabited a human body. The human body, that was an early church heresy, was to say, well, Jesus couldn't have been actually in a body because the body is evil. It's the flesh. So Jesus must have just looked like he was in a body, and really he was a spirit, almost like a, a ghost or something. Yeah, it's interesting. This is on page 227 of my edition, which is like about, I don't know, 10, 15 pages. No, about, about, yeah, about 10, 8 pages, 9 pages in. It says, Long views depressed Parker. You look out into space like that and you begin to feel as if someone were after you, the Navy or the government or religion. Now, <laughs> it is possible that like people, you know, adherents of a religion could be after you, but like, if there's only one true religion, then any other religion beyond that cannot follow you, come after you, chase you, because it doesn't exist. And it's interesting that he phrases it like that because he says, as if someone were after you. And then he says the Navy, which is, of course, a, a group of people in the military, or the government, which is <laughs> the government, right? Or religion, which I guess you could say, okay, that could be like the Catholic Church or the, the nation of it, you know, like the, the, the Sunni Muslims or Shiite Muslims or whatever. But, but this idea of someone were after you and someone is after Parker and it's Jesus and this idea of he puts him on his back because that's the place he's not going to look. Does that make sense? Like, like, he gets the tattoo on his back thinking, I never looked there, but he feels compelled to get it there because he wants to be in good grace, in the good graces of his wife. He doesn't want to see the tattoo. Right. Because it has these all-demanding eyes, and he yes. just doesn't want to have to submit to those demands. Um, he's explicitly compared to Jonah running away from God, and God's yeah. pursuing him. Um, but yet, at the end of the story, it says... Parker turned his head as if he expected someone behind him to give him the answer. Yes. Um, he's, 
instead of it being, oh, Jesus is looking away from me now because he's on my back, it's like Jesus is always right there behind me in a way that he can kind of depend on it. We can turn around and ask him for the answer. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, you know, I was thinking about his name and how he's like, I'm going to kill you if you say it out loud. It makes me think of the name of God, Yahweh, like Jesus says before Abraham was, I am. And he said, you know, he... he he claims the, the, the divine name of God that, that, like, in Jewish culture, they will spell it out G, you know, space D. Like, they will not even spell out God, even though that's not the name Yahweh. But they, they have such reverence for God's name and this idea of don't take the Lord's name in vain that they don't even want to, like, print it out. Like that's the reverence they have for his for his name, and 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 O.E. Parker has the same reverence for his own name, and you know, it's interesting that he does that because we don't really think about names being that significant, and yet in culture we have so much focus on the self that it's like how dare you take away my name, my dignity, my rank, my place, my, you know, my, my, my belonging, right? And so it's like he's as, he's as fiercely protective of his name in the way that God is, in a way that like he's playing God with his own name. But I think it's indicative of how everyone has the capacity to want to be like God in that way of like being uh, vigilant for the for their own uh, need or their own reputation or whatever it is, um, and like yeah, radically yeah. autonomous. Exactly, he gets yeah. to decide for himself what he's called. His mother doesn't have that power over him. Oh, I wonder if increasingly um, that's going to be the case as our I think our culture becomes more and more prone toward that radical autonomy, seeking that. Yeah. I mean, I think of the movie Lady Bird. <laughs> she wants to name herself. Yes. Um, rejects the name Christine that her mother gave her. Yes. And, in fact, similarly, Christine, yeah. you know, related to Christ. But I think that people might increasingly say, my parent did not have the right to give me my name. I decide for myself what my name is. Yeah. Well, if people are deciding their gender, then changing their name is a lot easier than that but that's the thing about like who gets to decide and I think that that's you know that's a debate we're having in culture right now there are a lot of people that are certain they are right and you know the way that I handle it is I try to take a step back first just like I mentioned with the Lancelot first look for where is this person's brokenness and try and have some kind of ministry to that brokenness if I can and then like help that person see themselves because you know I have to have people do that for me too it's like I can't just perfectly see myself at all times and and I've had to you know eat some very uh, high calorie humble pie in the last few years and so um that that's something that doesn't it doesn't destroy you, but it does break you 
on the on the cornerstone, you know, uh, that is the rock of Christ. Like Parker at the end of the story is sobbing like a baby. Yeah. And and that's a as in many of Flannery O'Connor's stories, that's a good sign that he's yeah. hurting, that he's grieving. It means that he's been reborn, I think. Yeah, I, I was thinking about the ending of this because we have this, like, he knocks on the door, he wants to get in, and he never gets in. And that's, I, I just think, you know, I relate that to Flannery O'Connor because I, I do think that she just kind of was, was outside of everything. Like, she wasn't, you know, she, was, she wasn't originally from Milledgeville. So she wasn't a true, like, local girl. And she, you know, couldn't stay up north because of her, her illness. And so, she, and then you got her illness. She's, she's an invalid in a world of healthy people. And, and especially in the post-war era, like when you're talking about the 50s and early 60s, that really is what a lot of people think of as the golden age of America. And so in, in the height of American prosperity and flourishing, here's Flannery Connor getting more and more debilitated by lupus. And yet, you know, she's still writing. So it's like she's a, she's a Christian writer, so she doesn't exactly get to be in the league with the, the, the secular writers. She's a, she's a gruesome, violent writer, so she doesn't really feel a kinship with, like, the kind of writers that are writing sweet little, like, you know, oh, and then it lived, everybody lived happily ever after. And, and the reality is, you know, if, if you want to be a Christian, you start with poverty of spirit. You have to acknowledge that your spirit cannot purchase your salvation and that only one beings can, and it's Jesus. And so that, that place is so indicative in this story that, that Jesus gets his imprint on, on Parker, not because Parker's like, I want Jesus, but because Jesus wants him. Yeah. And I was thinking through Sarah Ruth's role in the story because it's a little confusing when you first read the story. At first, it seems like she's a, maybe one of these kind of stern but correct um, agents of grace in his life, but then you start realizing that that doesn't, I think he, she might be an agent of grace in his life, Yeah. but she might not be a recipient of grace. Right. Like an agent without knowing it. Uh, yeah. Because she's so legalistic and, mm-hmm. and unkind. Um, and, and the, but at the beginning of the story, it feels to me like he's tempting her. He's bringing her an apple yes. and it highlights how oh, slowly yeah. she's eating yeah, it. Um, there's a moment that says the girl gazed at this, uh, meaning the tattoo, the girl gazed at this with an almost stupefied smile of shock as if she had accidentally grasped a poisonous snake. Yes. <laughs> she dropped the hand. Yes. I think he's an agent of temptation for her at first. Um, and she's resisting temptation through the power of her own self-righteousness, mm-hmm. I would say. Um, and he eventually kind of caves into her yeah. sense of what's righteous because she's just so stern and strong about it. Yeah. And he understands much better than her ultimately what it is he's submitting to yeah. when he submits to Jesus. He somehow has um, understood much better than her what, what grace is. Yeah. Her father, I'll just throw in this, her father also um, abandoned the family to go preach the gospel in Florida. In Florida. <laughs> 
And it just reminded me of what happened with Rufus' grandfather abandoning him to go um, yes. start a Noah's Ark yes. cave. But and, and it mentions someone's grandfather. Now I gotta find it because I, I I like bring it up, but now I gotta find it. It mentions that someone's grandfather was in a in a mental ward. I think it's I think it's um, well. Let me just find it. It it says, but he wasn't there until he was seventy five, and so yeah. No, it's Parker's grandfather. Is it Parker's I'm grandfather? Pretty sure. okay. Yeah. So so that concept is interesting because of course you know yeah it makes you think about uh, he thinks he might be going crazy yes and he says yes. he keeps turning around as if someone were trailing him yes. again with jesus being behind him and then yeah. it says that yeah. about his grandfather had been in the state yeah, mental his, hospital. he had he had had a granddaddy who had ended in the state mental hospital although not until he was 75 but as urgent as it might be for him to get a tattoo, it was just as urgent that he get exactly the right one to bring the Sarah Ruth to heal. Sorry, to bring Sarah yes. Ruth to heal. And so that concept of him having, you know, a grandfather that, that was put in the mental asylum, very similar to Rufus Johnson. It's like, to me, Parker has these elements of Rufus Johnson and the misfit. And Tarwater in and Tarwater. the Valbert Away. Yeah. His yeah. grandfather, who taught him to be a prophet, also yes. was put in a mental yes. institution for a while. So there, there is this, this overlap in this character, and yet it, it's almost like this story is, is the, the anti A Good Man's Hard to Find. You know, all of those characters, I would say, have in common kind of a Jonah complex Um yeah. God has called them to be prophets, and they just don't want to. Yeah. And they're running away from it, fighting it, and God is just not going to let them go. He's God's relentless. And right after that part we were just reading, um, you see that Parker's pride shrinking a little. The way his um, employer says that she could fund a 14-year-old colored boy who could do his work if he yeah. couldn't. And it says Parker was too preoccupied even to be offended um, thinking about what tattoo he should get on his back. Right. So it's like his sense of being quick to defend himself and, and having a, a short fuse in terms of his pride is shrinking because he's getting preoccupied with this Jesus tattoo. And then right after that, he has this religious experience during the tractor accident. Yeah, it says the sun, the size of a golf ball, began to switch regularly from in front to behind him. But he, but he appeared to see at both places as if he had eyes in the back mm. of his head. Mm-hmm. All at once he saw the tree reaching out to grasp him. A ferocious thud propelled him into the air, and he heard above him, uh, he heard himself yelling in an unbelievably loud voice, God above! So um, the, the tractor accident that he has, I, you know, it makes me think about mowing my grandmother's backyard, like <laughs> riding around those trees as close as you can get. Um, and, and just that idea that he's like seeing the sun again and again, we've talked about it a little bit, like Flannery O'Connor uses the sun to represent God mm-hmm. and, and, um, he's surrounded by the sun. Yeah. He's, he's seeing him he's coming and going. And, um, and, and so it says he landed on his back. So, so the tractor accident happens. He lands on his back, which is where he's going to get the tattoo. Uh, while he, while the tractor crashed upside down into the tree and burst into flame. And so, you know, there's this idea of, like, burning bush, like Moses in the burning bush. Parker gets this combination of, like, 
you know, being called like a prophet or being being um, spoken to God directly or having this near-death experience that makes him want to go get this tattoo of Christ on his back. Like, he never would have wanted that tattoo yeah, had that he not had the experience. Tattoo. Exactly. Yeah. That tattoo that haunts him, that's powerful, yeah. and, and he can't seem to evade it. He would have gotten one of those friendly, smiling Jesus tattoos, probably, yes. otherwise. But I love that also that his shoes fly off and get yeah. eaten up by the fire, um, which is another echo of Moses. He's on holy ground, and he keeps his shoes off. He goes Ooh, to the yeah. city, yeah. still doesn't have any shoes on. Interesting. Um, interesting, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so... This is toward the end of the story. Um, It says, look at it. Don't just say that. Look at it. And she says, I done looked, she said. Don't you know who it is? He cried in anguish. Um, And we talked about, when did we talk about the word in anguish? Was it on Lady on her first? I don't know. I've got so many different conversations and sermons and all these things run through my head right now. It might have been, I'm sure it was a Tim Keller's sermon. Um, but the, the feeling that, that Jesus has when Lazarus dies, I think it was, right? We talked about that. Yeah, last time. Yeah. Um, when, when Lazarus dies, Jesus knows he's going to re- resurrect him. Like, how could he possibly feel sad? He's, he should be like, oh, good, now I can go you know, be Jesus. Almost but, like he'd chuckle at them and yes. say, don't worry, don't worry, it's under control. Yes. But he doesn't. He cries, like the shortest Bible, verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Like, Jesus is in agony. He is in anguish that death has to happen. And not just to someone that he's friends with, but just death itself has to happen because, like, Jesus sees the, the pure dignity of every person. And sometimes, you know, he will challenge that person. Like if it's a Pharisee, he challenges them immediately to get them to <laughs> check their privilege. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes it's someone that's the least of these or the lame shall enter first, you know, that he, you know, they say, if you're willing, you know, I know you can heal me. And he's like, I, I'm willing. I want to. Like that's that's my favorite part. I think it's in Mark, but he heals uh, someone that's. I think he's. I think he's crippled. And you know, the translation that I read was like, I want to! Exclamation point. And just thinking about Jesus being that emphatically excited to heal me, to be with me, to walk with me, to never let me go. That that's really what just cemented my faith and and, and you, you know. mentioned the those verses the first day we met really yeah wow well that that just goes to show like i when when i saw jesus clearly he was undeniable and it's not because oh he was this you know kumbaya like you know never gonna judge me never gonna whatever it was like i saw that he could heal me and and i let him heal me and he obviously did because he can, and he wanted to. <laughs> and so th- just the fact that she doesn't, she doesn't see the point of this. It says, I done looked. Don't you know who it is? He cried in anguish. No, who is it? Sarah Ruth said, it ain't anybody I know. It made me think of the Enduring Chill where Asbury is like, let's talk about Joyce. <laughs> And the priest is like, James Joyce, I, I've never met him. Like, and he moves on. And, and it's like, the, 
in that story, it's humorous. In this story, it's sad. It's yeah. so sad. She's swatting away she, Jesus yes. as if he's a an annoyance, yes. a gnat, you know. It's him, Parker said. Him who? God, Parker cried. God? God don't look like that. What do you know how he looks? You ain't seen him. He don't look, Sarah Ruth said. He's a spirit. No man shall see his face. Now, I mean, yeah, God the Father, yes. But God the Son was on earth from A.D. 1 <laughs> through A.D. 33 and is you know in heaven now and is going to come back to earth sometime. Um, be on the lookout for, you know, marks of the beast and Antichrist. But, you know, here is Parker saying, I got Jesus tattooed on me. And he did it to win her favor. And then when he doesn't get her favor, it says, Idolatry, Sarah Ruth screamed, Idolatry, inflaming yourself with idols under every green tree. I can put up with lies and vanity, but I don't want no idolater in this house. And she grabbed up the broom and began to thrash him across the shoulders with it. Parker was too stunned to resist. He sat there and let her beat him until she had nearly knocked him senseless and large welts had formed on the face of the tattooed Christ. Then he staggered up and made for the door. So he allows her to abuse him, just like when he said, like Christ allows the, the members of the Sanhedrin and, and, and Pontius Pilate's soldiers to, to abuse him and just to, to whip him and obviously to crucify him ultimately, but, but that he just stands there and takes it. And, and he's been so contrary to the whole story. And now the words that are used to describe him talking to her are striking. It yeah. says, I'll just read them in order. Yeah. He whispered, he whispered, um, he said quietly, he groaned, he cried in anguish, he moaned. Um, I mean, these are humble words, even though his you can interpret his words as being in an aggressive tone until you read those descriptors. And um, her, her descriptors are things like Sarah Ruth growled. Um, Sarah Ruth screamed. They're so aggressive. Yes. Yes. um, And loud. It, It also on the page before that, we're told that Parker fell back against the door as if he had been pinned there by a lance. I, I stopped to think about that for a second, and I actually looked up the word lance and um, just any connections to, to Christ, and I found out that the word lance is a commonly used alternative word for spear, like the spear yes. in Jesus' side. And I just I was not familiar with that, but there are all these paintings and... and um, depictions of Jesus being speared in the side that are called um, Jesus lanced in the side. Yes. So one more connection to, to Christ. Not that I think that he's a straightforward Christ figure in this. I just think that he is suffering with the sufferings of Christ in this moment. Yes. Um, like any believer will he's, be called to yeah. at some point. He's taking up his cross and carrying yeah. it and, and it in the most violent way of, of really maybe any Flannery O'Connor story except for A View of the Woods. Like, that's the only other one that has, like, intense violence in it. Now, one more does. 
revelation that we're going to talk about last. Well, these stories where it's a family member being so violent to another family yes. member, like a view of the woods, can strike you in a, a particularly gruesome right. way, you know? Differently than, like, everything that rises must converge. Like, you know, uh, Julian's mom gets hit by the by the woman with the, the matching hat with her purse, but it doesn't seem like she's just going to wail on her till till she beats her senseless. Yeah. It's like she just smacks her once, whereas this is like... Sarah Ruth will not quit. And so there's this interesting, you know, uh, punishment that she's giving him. And it's interesting that, um, like, when, when uh, Parker's looking at the book of all the, the tattoo, you know, options of tattoos of Christ, it says, um, the pictures became less and less reassuring. One showed a gaunt green dead face streaked with blood. Which is interesting because from a visual artist standpoint, that's green and red, a color complement. And it says one was yellow with sagging purple eyes. So yet again, she's using these color complements to contrast the purple of Jesus' eyes versus the yellow glow behind him. Or the, or the blood on his face against the greenness of his dead skin. I mean, what, what a just... what I mean, she couldn't have picked a more powerful thing... To, to use color complements to illustrate. And, and just thinking of that, you know, here's someone who's an amateur painter, you know, like Flannery O'Connor is so visually, um, you know, inclined anyways. And here's a story about a visual act, getting a tattoo, you know, like having the tattoo of Christ on your back. And the Pantocrator... Uh, images are, are interesting because they've got this one eye that's meant to be his human eye, and it just looks like kind of like he's looking at you or trying to connect to you almost. And then he's got the God eye that's kind of the all-seeing eye, and it's almost like he's wa- he's watching you or judging you, and he's trying to connect to you. I mean, it's just such a... I mean, just to think of, like, the power of that image... So the Sarah Ruth is only understanding the judging side of God and not the yes. human side of God yes. that was trying to connect. Yeah, and, and you know, just like what you mentioned, the ending is just—it's so powerful because it says she stamped the broom two or three times on the floor and went to the window and shook it out to get the taint of him off it. Mm. Still gripping it, she looked toward the the pecan tree or pecan tree. Uh, shout out to R. G. Lamar of Stuckey's, uh, I think he's the president now, um, they are pecans if you're buying and they're pecans if you're selling. Um, so she looked toward the pecan tree and her eyes hardened still more. There he was who called himself Obadiah Elihu, leaning against the tree, crying like a baby. And just that ending, it didn't hit me the first time, but it hit me when I started thinking about it, listening to the close reads people talking about this story which they have a lot of good things to say about all the stories, but this one in particular, I thought they had a lot of really insightful things. So if you've not listened to any of the Close Reads discussions of uh, the stories from Everything That Rises Must Converge, Parker's Back might be a good starting place for you, um, especially if you're enjoying reading these stories and listening to us talk about them. There are other people talking about them as well, and they, they have great things to say too. But the idea that this story ends with a man clinging to a tree, crying like a baby, is so beautiful to me because here's Flannery O'Connor in the depths of her, you know, dying. I mean, she is literally 
weeks away from dying and she's finishing this story and here's this man just clinging to the tree and crying like a baby and that's that's how every Christian should should like when you think about what does it look like to turn the other cheek Parker is doing that and it says there he was who called himself Obadiah Elihu it's not who called himself Parker because that's what he calls himself the whole story, right? But then who called himself Obadiah Elihu, and it's like all of a sudden now we're in the mind of Sarah Ruth, and she's seeing him holding onto the cross crying like a baby from her point of view, but really what I think he's doing is he's acknowledging he's, he's a child of God. He's, he's, he's a son of God. You know, this idea of uh, blessed are the pure of hearts, for they shall be called sons of God. You know, and 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 it's it's just no. They so they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And so that here we are in the end of the Beatitudes, <laughs> and and he has really gone through these these stages. Like he's been poor in spirit. He's mourned. He has been meek. I would say he's fairly meek in the um, in the in the approach at the door. Like. He doesn't burst into the door. I feel like he hungers and thirsts for righteousness insofar as he can in this ending. I feel like he, um, you know, he, he um, is pure of heart at the end. He's trying to be a peacemaker. And, um, and, and just, you know, I, I see him... He's me. I guess he's being merciful too, right? Because that's one of them. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. He's being merciful by not responding to his wife in kind. Which, by the way, this is a pregnant woman, so she's got like regular woman strength plus pregnant woman strength, like you know. And I mean, she wasn't even pregnant. And she sh- she pushed him out of the car and it ripped the door off. So she's some kind of like Nadine in season two of yeah. Twin Peaks, Bobby Keane. Um, you know, that, that's just super, super strength. Um, but I, you know, I just think about the ending of this and I think about the ways that her, in, her, her final stories end, you know, that this, every story in this collection is published, you know, ultimately as a collection after she dies. And you look at the way that these stories end, and we'll talk about it some more in the, in the Omega episode, but I think this story ends in such a such a profound and powerful way because if we know Christ and we see him clearly, which you know he's got him on his back, so he's not necessarily seeing clearly, but he's bearing him. He is a he's an image bearer, right? He's he's bearing the image of Christ. Well, now he's responding to Christ appropriately. He's not responding by being judgmental of others the way that Sarah Ruth is. He's not scoffing the way that the people in the bar are. He's not like, you know, well, take my art more seriously the way the, the, the tattoo artist is. Um, and he's not like, now, you know, be careful. Don't get close to that tree. Like, make sure you mow around it, but don't actually hit it the way that his boss does. He's just grabbing onto it and almost like, He's forsaken the world because he's just going to hold on to the tree. And you talk about seeing Jesus clearly 
even though Jesus is on his back. But I think that the image of Jesus that he chooses, or that chooses him, I guess, yeah. seems to indicate that he's seeing Jesus more clearly than, than he could. Because all of the tattoo options that depict Jesus give a picture yes. of who Jesus is, but yes. it's just a partial picture. That's a great point. Um, Jesus is so complex. That's why there are so many metaphors in the Bible for who God is because God's so complex so that he is a shepherd and he is a physician and he is our father and he I mean, it just goes on and on um, because we can't understand God with just one human role. He's just too complicated mm-hmm. for that. But I was thinking through, okay, the up-to-date depictions of Jesus are the good shepherd, forbid them not, which I guess is about not forbidding the little children right, to come to right. him. Maybe it was a Jesus with little children mm-hmm. around him. The smiling Jesus. Um, Jesus, a physician's friend. I, I actually tried to look that one up, but I couldn't find any information on yeah. it on the Google. But all of those are accurate depictions of Jesus, right? He was yeah, a good shepherd. facets of his Yeah, identity. but they feel safe. Yes. Um, and positive and... Yeah a little bit domesticated. Yeah. They're important, yeah. true aspects of Jesus, but if they're the only aspects of Jesus you're willing to let in, it's limited. Yeah. But then you have these gaunt, suffering images of yes. Jesus, which are also accurate, yes. but you could end up fetishizing the suffering Jesus and not understanding that Jesus yes. had that kind, gentle side or that kind of earthy side. Or, yes. And so anyway, or the powerful side. So... There's a side of Jesus that submitted to suffering, and there's a side of Jesus that's so powerful that he turned the tables in the temple and things like that. Well, Siri, I got a Charlie horse. Sorry. Adam's, um, like, groaning I, 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 like, am actually getting here. a Charlie horse as I'm <laughs> sitting here. Um, well, so you can stand up and move around. Yeah. Um, but Charlie horse? <laughs> what, what, what happened to you? I thought you were making a podcast. Um I always liked Hush Puppy. I don't know why. You know, the Hush Puppy with the HP on his sweater, that was my favorite one. There are two Hush Puppy. Like, Hush Puppy had a different shirt on some seasons of Lamb Chops, but, um, Lamb Chop, I should say. Um, but then Charlie Horse, he got these, like, crazy, uh, like, MC Hammer pants that were, like, zebra print, and he had a backwards hat on because, you know, he's the cool one. Um, but anyways... Um, but back to the lecture at hand, um, the, just the, the way that, like what he's saying, the way that Christ comes across can be either pigeonholing or it can be emancipating. And, you know, if you read the gospels, then you know who Christ is. Because then you can read the rest of the Bible and see Christ in Genesis. Or see Christ, obviously he's, he's in Revelation, he's talking to John, you know, John the Apostle. But, um, but you can see him in the epistles. You can, see, you, you can see him everywhere in the Bible because he's God. He's the living word. And yet, there are limits to Christ. Like, he isn't sinful. He isn't above the Father. He isn't you know, uh, a creation of the Father. He, 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 is, he is God, so he isn't not God. And, and so just when you think about Jesus as fully man and fully God, 
it, you know, there's, there are all these different heresies about Jesus's identity and all these kind of, you know, misunderstandings of Jesus within different churches and denominations and the history of Christianity. But really, the portrait that uh, Parker gets of Christ is maybe the most, uh, like, like you get as much information about Jesus in that one image Mm-hmm. as you can possibly put into into two-dimensional art of Jesus, which is to say you can infer all of those other things about him, like Whitney mentioned, good shepherd, suffer the not the little children, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But you can also you can also infer the suffering, you can also infer the the godness and the the humanness and just you know the the Flannery O'Connor thought, like, this is what I, this is what I want to work on in case I'm dying. Like, this is the one I want to finish, you know, because I know she had other ideas and she had, she had other like possibilities that she could have worked on other than Parker's back. But it's just moving to me to think like this is the story that she ended with because it does feel different from the other ones in this collection. Her Jesus has all demanding eyes. Yes, um, yes. I, I think that that's powerful and important because Jesus does demand our all, but he gives us everything in return. Yes. He doesn't demand yes. and then not give back, but he does demand our all, and I think that's the biggest stumbling block that almost any person feels to following Christ is that he just demands our all. And it yeah. takes me back to the lame shall enter first, yes. um, where Rufus says, if you're going to do it, it's no sense in doing it halfway. Like he understands how demanding Jesus is, and that's why yeah. he hasn't submitted to faith in Jesus yeah. yet. And it also takes me back to the misfit and a good man is hard yep. to find. I'll yep. I'll read that too because I have the collected story, yes. so I can flip back. Um, but he says Jesus was the only one that ever raised the dead, and he shouldn't have done it. He thrown everything off balance. If he did what he said, then it's nothing for you to do but throw away everything and follow him. And if he didn't, then it's nothing for you to do but enjoy the few minutes you got left the best way you can. Yeah. By killing somebody or burning down his house or doing some other meanness to him. Yeah, and and just thinking about the way that the guys in the bar respond to... And they all know his name's O.E. So it's interesting. They kind of like... They kind of know him. But yet they they don't it's like they don't want it's almost like they don't want the tattoo that he got to really change them, so they want to kind of like push him out um and, and they have that, a one moment before they start scoffing where they can't help but have a little bit of wonder, yes, which is interesting. Yes. Um, they just they all just fall into silence for a second and then they start scoffing. Yeah. Go ahead, sorry. Well I was gonna say just the the way that the way that they interact with him, you know, they're in a bar, it says it was a well lighted barn like place with a bar up on one side and gambling machines on the other and pool tables in the back. And it's almost like a confluence I use that word already. It's almost like a combination of the milking room in Greenleaf and the, what's his name? Tillman's. Tillman's in <laughs> A View of the Woods. It's got this kind of catch-all, 
den of iniquity. <laughs> yeah, and he's running there. It says explicitly he's running there like Nineveh. Yes. Uh, or like Jonah running from Nineveh. He's like running from God's will into this place, this very secular place. It says Parker was not yet ready to be struck on the back yes. because he just got his tattoo and they're wanting to pat him on the back. But that, of course, calls us back to the end where he is ready to be struck on the back. An original way to do it if, if I ever saw one. Yeah, boy! Um, <laughs> it's just, you know, and, and we're, you know, we're peeking here. Uh, <laughs> we went to the red. Um, just, it says, what'd you do it for? For laughs, Parker said. What's it to you? Why aren't you laughing then? Somebody yelled. And, and I think then you start to see Parker lunged into the midst of them, and like a whirlwind on a summer's day, there began a fight that raged amid overturned tables and swinging fists until two of them grabbed him and ran to the door with him and threw him out. And so it's almost like Jesus turning the tables yeah. in, the, in the temple there. And so... I'm like, why did he go to that bar? Like, did he go, did did he, did the Holy Spirit lead him there? And he's like, he doesn't even know he's going to pronounce this, like, warning from God yes, to them. And, and somehow, yeah, like, he's a warning to God, even though he's not there to do it willingly. Yeah. It, it still happens. Because right after that, one of my favorite parts of the story basically says that. It says... Parker sat for a long time on the ground in the alley behind the pool hall, examining his soul. Yes. He saw it as a spider web of facts and lies that was not at all important to him, but which appeared to be necessary in spite of his opinion. <laughs> so it's funny, he is examining his own soul, and he says basically, like, it's not important to him. Yeah. His soul doesn't matter to him, um, but apparently it matters to someone, right? To, it matters to God. The eyes that were now forever on his back were eyes to be obeyed. He was as certain of it as he had ever been of anything. And then it says, goes on to say that throughout his life, he had been following this instinct and doing things like joining the Navy and getting his tattoos and marrying his wife. And he didn't know where the instinct came from and he didn't always want to follow it. He just felt that he had to. Um, I like that it's necessary in spite of his opinion. Just bringing our opinions down a few notches. There are just some things that are true and that we're not in control of, and it really doesn't matter what our opinions are on them. Well, it's interesting that you say that because I was thinking about the the tattoo man and how he, he just seems magnetically drawn to this person. He's like, I want to be that exact thing. And I just think as a teenager, it's very hard to want to be Jesus because Jesus died. I mean, you're like, I'm a teenager. I want to have fun. I want to be awesome. I want, I want glory. I want, I want, um, I, I don't want to be the follower. I want to be the leader, you know? Um, and, and, you know, there just is a spirit within teenagers that, that desires certain things that really can only be found in Christ, but it's very hard to need Christ as a teenager. Like you want acceptance so badly, and you're yes. offered unlimited, beautiful acceptance. But in a, I think as a teenager, you often don't want acceptance for who you truly are because it's too scary to show who you yeah. truly are. Um, you want acceptance because you can conform to whatever you find to be the most awesome 
person you've observed. Yeah. And, and like, he doesn't talk to the guy. He doesn't get to know him. He doesn't know any of the reasons for any of his tattoos, and it's possible he couldn't even tell you what a single of, what a single one of his tattoos actually was. He just could tell you what he what the memory in his mind was of what this guy looked like, which was an arabesque of colors. And like I said, it's like he's a walking stained glass window. I think I think there's a possibility that you know if this is a metaphor, Parker is seeing the beauty of the church but not realizing the reason for the church like I love stained glass windows I love them they are so beautiful I just could look at them all day long but if I'm not worshiping the God for whom they are made and to, to made made to, to point toward then I'm 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 wasting my worship on the creation and not knowing the creator and sure enough, he, he doesn't know the, the tattoo artist for the, the man that's tattooed from head to toe. He just knows that he was changed by tattoos. And ironically, Parker is also changed by tattoos. So it's like God uses his idolatry of tattoos to bring him into Christ's kingdom. That concept we talked about last podcast about C.S. Lewis's idea that if you love something or someone, it just opens your heart up to God. If you close yourself off to, to love and, and love in that sense where you, you just genuinely are willing to sacrifice for something and you're passionate about it. If you close yourself off to love, you're closing yourself off to God. And I think Flannery O'Connor reflects that because we see that Parker actually thinks that the tattoos are more valuable because they hurt him a bit. And he says before in life, he had thought that the only reason things were valuable is because they don't hurt as if he was just pursuing the path of least resistance all the time. But he starts to understand the concept of working and sacrificing for something for tattoos. Yeah. Yeah. And and the tattoos lead him to Christ. And that's, that's what, you know, I, I always try to keep that in mind about people who are chasing something that is clearly an idol because like I made, I made an idol out of music but now I worship God through the songs that I write. And I just feel like I might write a song that's not about God or about my faith, but like that's my intention from now on. So it's, mm-hmm. it's like my intention was to be known as the song, you know, to be famous, to, to have people say that I was awesome. And I just don't need that anymore. And I may never get it. That's fine. But I would rather be a musician praising God in heaven than have any level of success on earth. Even the things that I was like certain would have made it for me, you know, Um, because ultimately you look at these people that make it in music. And I mean, it's it's just it's so sad to see people destroy themselves, people uh, just kind of come unhinged. And, and people destroy others. I mean, it's it's just as hurtful to see a musician um, just be a total a hole and 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 you know cut everyone out of their life uh, as it is to see someone you know commit suicide or die of a, an overdose or something like that. Um, but you know, just that was my the the thing I thought. Oh, God's called me to do that, and that's. But it wasn't. It was like I wanted. 
I wanted that to be God's will for me. And so really it was my will that I was trying to fit God's will into. And it's interesting that Parker only has a certain amount of surface area on his body that's not spoken for. You know, he can't get a life-size Christ tattooed on both sides of his skin. He only has his back left. And so he, he left it open because he didn't want a tattoo there, but God put the, put the impetus to get the tattoo into him when he survives the, the tractor overturning and crashing into the, the uh, tree and catching fire. And so, you know, just the, the way that it all works is very indicative of Flannery O'Connor's career. It's like she would not have written that, um, that trajectory for herself that she would have to move back to Milledgeville and get lupus and just, you know, have to live the life she did where she was hospitalized a lot. She's obviously in the hospital a lot right before she dies. And, um, and it, it's sad. I mean, I, you know, I'm sad that anyone has to go through that pain, but I just have so much joy about Flannery O'Connor. That's why I wanted to do her uh, for the podcast was like, this, this is just a joy. It's a joy to read these stories and especially Parker's back it ends with this guy crying like a baby and yet I have so much joy in that image because I think about Flannery O'Connor chose the perfect way to end his story you know and and it wasn't for him to be like singing hallelujah right it was for him to be crying like a baby and clinging to a tree because he he started as a proud dismissive you know just angry person and it, you know it says he's watching her sullenly and and by the end of the story he's emoting and instead of like holding in his emotion but the emotion is not destructive it's actually regenerative because he's it's like he's pouring out his heart to the tree which by you know by extension could be the cross and so he's connecting to Jesus in that last moment and, and the suffering that he gets physically from, from Sarah Ruth. So it, it is just such a, it's such an interesting and powerful story for her to be, you know, to, to finish her career with. Um, and we, we are going to talk about Revelation next, which is the original ending story for this uh, short story cycle. And, and really is like the perfect, like, it's either the perfect first story to read of hers if you've never read one, or it's the perfect last, like save for last story. Uh, Whitney, other thoughts about Parker's back? Um, I'll, I'll just conclude by kind of piggybacking on what you were just saying about making an idol of something um, like music, for example, um, or tattoos. Or I, I just love that God will often, I think, if we're malleable enough to be ultimately willing to acknowledge that we've made an idol of something um, and be changed. He doesn't necessarily have to take that thing away from us. He just puts it in its proper place in our life because these things we make idols of often are not bad in and of themselves. They're just put in the the wrong place in our lives. They're made everything to us instead of made something that we can enjoy in a healthy way. And like you say, music has been that for you. Um, I think that often for artistic people, their art is, it's very easy to make art an idol for intellectual people. It's very easy to make the intellect an idol. Um, those things are good. They're part of actually how we're made in God's image, 
But when we make them too much for ourselves, we start worshiping ourselves, really, instead yeah. of worshiping God. And it's so freeing to be able to enjoy your intellect or your creativity without having to worship it. Because when you worship it, there's always this fear that you're really not good enough or that you're really not appreciated enough or validated enough. Um, and we can be set free of that fear. Yeah. And that's, you know, that I think that's ultimately what Flannery O'Connor is doing in these stories. She's, she's relinquishing the ambition for literary permanence in exchange for asserting her faith. And... I think she implies her faith in her in her stories up to this point, like Wise Blood, Violent Buried Away, and, and the stories in um, Good Man is Hard to Find. But really, these stories, like the Enduring Chill, is very clearly a, a story about the Holy Spirit's going to get you, you know, rhythm is going to get you, Gloria Stefan. But that that she is she's becoming increasingly... Uh, explicit with her faith to the point where Parker's back is literally about getting a tattoo of Jesus on your back. Like it, it doesn't get more uh, vivid than that. And so, you know, this this story being the last one that she was working on, I really think that she had just she had just thrown caution to the wind and just said like, you know, I, I want people to remember my faith instead of my um, artistic talent, right? And um, and I'm at that same point, you know, I mean, I, I love art. I love, I love music. I love, you know, literature. I mean, I, I write, <laughs> I, I write, you know, I make music and I paint, but I don't care if anyone, you know, keeps the paintings or, you know, publishes the novels or, or listens to the songs. I, I just want people to know that I love God because God loves, I mean, God, God is so worthy of my love, but it's like, he is so lovely. It's like, I want people to know how lovely God is. And the way to know how lovely God is, is to start with Jesus. Because really, you can't look at Jesus at like, like on the back of, you know, on Parker's back tattoo. You can't look at him long enough and not see him. Because if you read the gospels, you will see who Jesus is. And if you let him, he will see you because he, he can see he can see you whether or not you want him to. But we're told, draw near to God, and He will draw yes. near to you. And and it you know this whole story it it's got little nods to Ecclesiastes, you know, vanity of vanities. She said, it's a heap of vanity. And uh, Solomon at the end of Ecclesiastes, he comes all the way around from everything is meaningless to everything can be meaningful. If you look at it under the under the lens of heaven rather than under the lens of the sun, meaning like if you only look at the natural, if you only look at what's on earth, if you only try and find your meaning under the sun and not under heaven, you'll never be satisfied because the things that should be stimulating, like what you said, music, reading, you know, getting tattoos, whatever it is, those things are meant to be stimulating, but they are not essentially and eternally satisfying and so Parker's back I think he realizes the tattoo wasn't satisfying and in that end he's crying this this beautiful combination of tears of joy tears of sorrow tears of shame it's like he 
he's emoting all of the emotions that Christ is bringing out of him so that he can be purified to you know to have that purity of heart so that he can really be someone who sees God so that's Parker's back and, and you want to say anything else okay um, so that's Parker's back we'll, we will come back uh, next episode with Revelation uh, last book of the Bible last story we're going to talk about and then we'll talk about the Omega episode um, because it does connect to the title everything that rises must converge um, but we've enjoyed this and we'll look forward to talking more uh, Flannery O'Connor next episode with you with some reading with the deals goodbye Bye.